Last Lord's Day, we took time to obtain an overview of the book of Judges, especially so that we might understand the times in which Samson lived. The book of Judges is a very sad book covering a period of about 350 years between the time of Joshua and Samuel. The land of Canaan had been taken under the leadership of Joshua, and now it needed only to be possessed. The remaining pockets of resistance needed to be completely eradicated and exterminated. It was a mopping up kind of assignment. Faith and obedience and courage could easily see the job done. But because the generation that followed Joshua did not know the Lord, unbelief, disobedience, compromise, assimilation of the wicked culture of the Philistines, and eventually divine retribution came to characterize this period of time. I want you to notice with me, please, just for one moment, by going back to chapter 2, but please keep a marker in chapter 13, what we saw briefly last week. In verse 10 and following, you see a summary of the entire book of Judges, and I want you to observe the cycle that Brother Larry made mention of just a moment ago, starting in verse 10, in the middle of verse 10. And there arose another generation after them, that would be after Joshua and his generation, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. It's a very important expression in understanding this whole book. They did not know the Lord. Are there some of you sitting here this morning or in the overflow room of which that could possibly be true? You do not know the Lord. Everyone hearing my voice now in this room, in the room behind me, and as Pastor Keith intimated, perhaps on the Internet, either knows or doesn't know the Lord. There is no in-between. This generation did not know the Lord, and notice what the historian goes on to say in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. See how they were assimilated into the culture? And bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So, this is God's response to sin. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Wherever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then 
the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, now notice this, and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled. You see the cycle? I mentioned it last week. You can think sort of of a clock if you like, and up at about 12, you see the word rest. And then after rest comes rebellion. And after rebellion comes retribution. And after retribution comes repentance. So again, to use the analogy of the clock, at 12 we have rest. At three, we have rebellion. At six, we have retribution or judgment. And at nine, we have repentance. And it just goes round and round and round for you. I guess it's this way, round and round and round through this whole book. That is the cycle. And all of this is rooted in an ignorance, a saving ignorance of God. And we observe that degenerate behavior is rooted in unregenerate hearts, which always go from bad to worse. Our problems are heart problems, and God's solutions are heart solutions. We saw that, like Israel, we need a king. We need a king who can actually change the hearts of his subjects, who can actually secure them from the inside out, that is, from the heart, a loving obedience and perseverance. And this is what was actually secured in the new covenant by the blood of our Savior. How blessed are we, dear people, to be new covenant believers. How urgently and how desperately we need to labor to see that our children and the next generation be brought into the grace of that covenant through the new birth. Otherwise, we too will lose the next generation. And we saw that like Israel of old, we still have enemies to eradicate from the land of rest in our own souls into which we have graciously entered. And those battles, too, must be won by an obedient faith and a gospel-saturated, motivated love for the Redeemer. Now, this morning we want to begin to look at the life and the judgeship of Samson. He was the last of 12 judges recorded in this book. Actually, Eli was a judge of sorts, a poor one, and Samuel himself was the final. But in this book, Samson was the last judge. And this morning, I want us to think together about Samson's birth. In chapter 14, we will think about Samson's marriage. In chapter 15, we will think about Samson's exploits. And finally, in chapter 16, we will consider Samson's demise and death. Now, he judged Israel, according to the last verse of chapter 16, for 20 years. He was, as I said, a contemporary of Eli. 
In fact, toward the end of his life, he was a contemporary of Samuel, though there's no record in 1 Samuel of Samuel ever meeting or talking to Samson. And apparently his judgeship of 20 years took place mostly between chapters 15 and 16. Now, it was a unique judgeship in many ways. He never mustered an army like most of the judges to fight the enemies. But you know what he did? By the grace and providence of God, he kept the Philistines off balance. They were continually distracted by having to give their attention to Samson. And in a strange way, I believe they were fearful of him. He is, as Larry told us, the only judge who was actually called from the womb. So let me just briefly review this chapter, which we've just read together, which I've subtitled uh, Samson's Birth, A Divine Call to a Devoted Life. And then after I just briefly reviewed it, I want to uh, make a caution. I want to give you a caution and five what I trust to be edifying observations. So what, what was it that Larry just read to us about? Well, very quickly... There was this strange visitor, we are told, although the woman who received the visit didn't know it, we are told it was not an angel of the Lord, but the, the angel of the Lord. There are lots of angels of the Lord, all unfallen angels that serve him are angels of the Lord. This is not an angel, this is the, the messenger. That's what angel means, angelos, the messenger of Jehovah, the word of God. But to her, it was just a strange visitor. And he came and he told her as a barren woman that she was going to bear a son who would someday deliver Israel from the Philistines or begin to deliver. That's what we saw in verse five. And he told her that he was to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a person who took upon himself or herself a vow to be devoted to God by abstaining from three things. Any fruit of the vine eaten or drunk, any cutting of the hair, or any contact with death. These were the vows of a Nazarite. And this visitor told her her son was to be a Nazarite for his whole life, not for a temporary period. And then in verses 6 through 8, she tells her husband, and he's so excited about it, he doesn't doubt her word. He immediately prays to the Lord, Lord, would you please send that, that visitor, that man of God, one more time so that he might give us some more detailed instructions as to how we should raise this son. And then in verses 9 through 14, God answers his prayer graciously. The strange visitor again comes to the woman. And she runs to her husband and says, he's here. And they go back to this visitor and ask the question through Manoah. And the visitor, this, what they think to be man of God, this, in fact, the angel of the Lord, simply reiterates the directions that he had previously given to Manoah's wife. No further information. Manoah offers hospitality. He wants to give the visitor a meal. The visitor refuses. He says, no, but what you ought to do is offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And before it is offered, Manoah says, could I just ask you what your name is? And 
the strange visitor says, Why do you ask? Because my name is beyond understanding. That's literally what the Hebrew means, which is translated wonderful. It's full of wonder. What a strange answer that may must have seemed to Manoah. Manoah offers the sacrifice, and he and his wife see the most amazing thing they've ever seen in their lives before. The visitor seems strange. She came to her husband. She said, honey, uh, this man of God came, but he had the appearance of, of an angel, an angel of the Lord. But still he seemed human. Now they see something extraordinary beyond imagination. The sacrifice is set on fire, probably by Manoah. And as it begins to burn, the angel of the Lord goes up, not in the smoke, but in the flames, upward toward heaven, and goes out of their sight. And they fall down on the ground, as we wouldn't expect. They're overwhelmed with humility, because now the text tells us they realize that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah fears certain death. Because after all, God himself had once said, perhaps repeatedly, that no man can see me and live. And yet, they did see him through a Christophany. And many people saw Christophanies. Moses saw one in the burning bush. Gideon has already seen one. So did Joshua. But he fears he's going to die. And his level-headed, discerning, Theologically astute wife helps him. It's a beautiful relationship. It doesn't mean that Manoah was a wimp and he didn't he wasn't God. He's a very godly man. It's a beautiful picture of a helpful marriage. There are times when wives can give their husbands the true understanding of something. They're very helpful. And she says, in essence, honey, if God meant to kill us, he would have killed us. He doesn't mean to kill us. Don't you see what's happening? He means to comfort us. He means to honor us. He has come and told us that through my womb, he is going to bring about a savior, small s, a deliverer, who will begin to deliver us. And after all, honey, he accepted the sacrifice, didn't he? And he gave us all these promises. We should be comforted. And apparently Manoah was comforted. And then the last two verses simply tell us about the fact of Samson's birth and just a brief statement about his childhood and how the Spirit of God came upon him and began to move him, to impel him, to give him a burden for the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. So there's the review. Now, a brief word of caution. I just want to say to you, and I needed this as I studied. This was helpful to me. I hope it will be helpful to you. Samson is admittedly a very difficult person to assess. Right? I mean, did he go to heaven or not? But our tendency is to think only or at least primarily of the negatives about Samson. I mean, be honest. When, when you see the word Samson, what's the first thing you think of? Maybe many of you think of Delilah, the cutting of his hair. Maybe some of you think about him pulling the pillars down and the roof collapsing upon thousands of Philistines. Maybe you think about him slaying a lion. 
But usually when people think of Samson, they think immediately about his sinfulness. Doesn't that come naturally to all of us? Isn't that a sad commentary on our proneness to think first about people's sins? We have that tendency. When we think of David, we, we may not first think about him being the sweet psalmist of Israel who had a heart after God's own heart and became a type of Christ and slew Goliath. Maybe, maybe we do think about that, but only for a moment or two. And then our mind goes to him committing adultery with the, with the wife of Uriah. Why do we do that? Why are we so prone to quickly think about sin? What we need to remember, dear brothers and sisters, is that the incidents recorded in chapters 13, well, particularly 14, 15, and 16, the incidences recorded in those three chapters are, in fact, incidences. Yes, they do point to a serious character flaw in this man. They do point to a proneness, a propensity on his part to be worldly. I do acknowledge that. But what I want you to appreciate along with me is that these were, in fact, incidences in his life. They didn't characterize the totality of his life. Here's a question for you. How would you like your whole life to be characterized by some of the things you did on just a few days of your life? Really? Would you like those things to be isolated told to the world and said, well, this is what she did back in the year such and such on such and such a day. This is what he did when he was in college. This is what he did not so long ago. And pull those things out and let those things become the overarching characteristic of your life. I grant you that these things are recorded for our edification, but nowhere do we read in chapters 13, 14, and 15 that this is the way Samuel lived all of the time. The fact of the matter is we are told, as I mentioned in the last verse of chapter 16, that he judged Israel for 20 years, and apparently between chapter 15 and 16, he did that with relative faithfulness. I'm not excusing any of his wickedness. I'm addressing a tendency that we have in our lives to focus on sin in other people's lives and to, and to have an obscured perspective on those persons, even biblical persons. What we need to remember is that God raised up this man to do what he did. Could he have done more than he did for the glory of God? Had he lived a more godly life? Yes. But it doesn't undo all that God sovereignly ordained for him to do. He did much for the glory of God. As I said, he kept the the Philistines off balance all of the time. They were very distracted. What are we going to do about Samson? Would you like, if I may probe your conscience just one more time in mine as well, would you like any given day of your life? Do you ever live a perfect day of your life? No. Do you ever live a whole day of your life without any kind of sin? No, not if you're honest. What if we just took those moments in your life during the day when you were sinful and said, that's who she is. That, that's really what she's all about. That's what he's all about. Wouldn't you say, no, it isn't what I'm all about. I hate those things, and I repented of those things. 
even as the day went on, and it didn't characterize the whole day, okay? This is the way we need to view Samson. Really, brothers and sisters, the person we need to focus on in chapters 13, 14, and 15, and 16 is God. One commentator put it this way. We must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse our focus on the God who saves. I'm going to read that again. We must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse our focus on the God who saves. And when we read in verse 5 that he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines, that needs to become our hermeneutical principle for interpreting the overall life of Samson. And I raised the question a minute ago, do you think you're going to see Samson in heaven? And I hope that many of you said, yes, I know I'm going to see him in heaven. And if I said how so, you would wisely say, because in Hebrews 11, verse 32 He is included in the hall of fame for those whose lives were characterized by faith. You think God would put him in Hebrews 11 if he's going to hell? No. The fact is that Samson was a man of faith in spite of all the inconsistencies in his life. And we will soon see that when he does his last feat in pulling down the pillars of the temple before he does, he acknowledges God's sovereignty and power in his life and pleads humbly once more that God might give him that power. He was, in fact, a man of faith. So there's my word of caution. There's my word of let's be objective about Samson. Okay, I'm ready for the observations. Number one, do we not clearly see in this historical record, first of all, the absolute sovereignty of God? Over history. And I think Larry helped us appreciate that again, even in just the reading. But notice verse 1 of chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. What in the world does that mean? The Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines. I don't know exactly how that works, because it's mysterious. But we know this much, that God, in his wisdom and omnipotence and providence, determined to punish his wayward people by not merely allowing, but by causing to happen the bondage that came from the Philistines. He gave them over to the Philistines. He is in control of history. And we read that all through this book, over and over and over. And what happens if you're like me, if you just read it and you say, ho-hum, and you go on, and you don't even pause long enough to say, wait a minute. If that means anything, it means that God is in control of history. It means that when Ben Laden is finally found and killed, God did it. There is not a single minute aspect of the history of mankind that is not totally, completely, absolutely 
exhaustively brought about by God himself, even though he is not the author of sin. So we see the sovereignty of God over history. But then very quickly in the heels of that observation, number two, I'm going to share with you six. Number two, don't we see the grace of God? We see the grace of God in this chapter and in so many of the other chapters. We see the grace of God in terms of God himself initiating a rescue and a deliverance. I told you last week that this book could well be called uh, the book of saviors. All of these judges were designed to save Israel from their unique oppressions. And so once again, God initiates salvation. I'm using the word salvation, first of all, right now in terms of deliverance from Philistine oppression. But of course, this is true of the salvation of the soul. We see the grace of God. And I want to ask you, did any of you notice anything missing here in this particular account? I keep referring to Larry. I'm going to do it maybe one last time. He was helping us see the cycle that I mentioned. The people of God rebelled and sinned. He brought them into bondage and oppression, and their condition was so miserable that they called unto the Lord, and he sent a deliverer. Okay? Did you see that in chapter 13? You see the bondage. You see the sin. They did evil again. Again. Again? Yes, again. The word again, again, yes, over and over and over. And they're in bondage now because of sin. Did you see any calling upon the Lord in chapter 13? If you did, show me where it is. It's not there. This is interesting. It's in so many other places. Not going to take you to the places. I have them in my notes. In chapter 3, verse 7, you have the evil. In chapter 3, verse 9, you have the calling unto God. 3, 12, 3.15, 4.1, 4.3, 6.1, 6.6, 10.6, 10.10. What is all that about? They did evil. God put them into bondage. They cried unto the Lord over and over and over. It's not here. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that God is so gracious that he is found by those who do not seek him. And he intervenes when he's not even sought. Sometimes, oftentimes, did you first seek the Lord or did he first seek you? You see, it's the grace of God. He initiates the deliverance. He says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to find a barren woman who's the most despicable, hopeless candidate to give birth to a deliverer. And I'm going to get her pregnant through her husband, but in a supernatural way. And I'm going to see that she gives birth to a deliverer. I'm going to do this, says God. I'm going to rescue my people. What a loving God. When he hears the groans and the cries, he responds. 
And he also initiates when he doesn't hear the the groans and the cries. You see, what happened was the people of Israel had become satisfied to, to remain under the suppression of the Philistines. That's why they didn't call upon him. They said, hey, it's not great, but it could be worse. Let's just go with the flow. Let's work within the framework. Let's live it out. In fact, on one occasion, after Samson had wrought a great deliverance and he smote the enemy, what the Bible calls hip and thigh. I'll tell you what that means, God willing, in three weeks. He says, now I'm going to go hide. And 3,000 Jewish, we'll call them soldiers, came and said, Samson, what in the world are you doing? Don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? You're getting us in all kinds of trouble. Please don't do this. Let's let things go. We can live under these circumstances. And Samson fools them and says, okay, what do you want me to do? And they say, let us tie you up and deliver you over to the Philistines. And you know the rest of the story. What, what is the point? The point, dear people, is that sin is so deceptive in our lives that sometimes we get to the place where we don't even care anymore. We're so accustomed to it. We no longer cry unto God. We're done crying unto God. We've we've given ourselves over to this. And God has no obligation to come and rescue such a person. But what I'm trying to point out is that God is so gracious, so unbelievably loving and merciful, that sometimes he initiates salvation even under such circumstances. Believe me. And particularly you who are unconverted. It's a dangerous thing to get comfortable with sin. It's a very dangerous thing to get comfortable with sin. You may get so comfortable with it that you no longer even have a desire to cry unto God for mercy. That's number two. Number three. And that's the one I'm spending the most time with. So, Number three. God likes to work with weakness and nothingness. That's the third thing I want us to observe. We've seen the sovereignty. We've seen the grace. And now, in a sense, we're going to see the wisdom. Because in the wisdom of God, he likes to confound the mighty with those things that are weak. Weak and, in a sense, nothing. Nothing. Look at who he calls to give birth to his deliverer, to his Savior. What's her name? If you can tell me that, I will pay you some money. That's the second question that I pose that you cannot answer. We don't know what her name is. Someday we will. Someday we'll meet her. How many times have you heard me say it? I'm not going to quit saying it. Since eternity is infinite in its duration and the number of the redeemed is finite, Sooner or later, we'll meet everybody. And someday, we will meet Manoah's wife. Maybe we'll go around. Maybe we'll meet Manoah first. And he won't be married to her. We'll say, have you seen your former wife? Where is she? I want to talk to that woman. She's pretty remarkable. 
Her faith was an encouragement to me. Remember when she had a perception on what was actually happening that helped you? And Noah, or Manoah will very humbly say, absolutely, she was a sanctifying, edifying influence in my life. I want to meet her. And we will eventually meet her. But who in the world is she? She's a barren Jewish woman. She's out in a field. They're not rich. She's probably watching the flocks. And this nameless, barren woman is the choice of God in sending forth a Savior. And in a sense, she sort of prefigures Mary. God likes to work with weakness. He likes to work with nothingness. And be encouraged because you may say, I don't think I'm ever going to be anything in the kingdom of God. Because I'm just so insignificant. Nobody knows who I am. I'm no great person. I have no great gifts. In fact, my life is rather barren. Good. You may be just the person that God wants to bring glory to himself through because of your weakness and your nothingness. Number four, notice for your encouragement what I'm going to call the supernatural power of prayer. Did any of you say, wow, when you heard read that Manoah prayed to the Lord in verse 8, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us? And teach us? Did any of you say wow when you read the first few verses of words of verse 9? And God listened to the voice of Manoah. That's what prayer is. Prayer is getting the ear of God. Prayer is communing with a God who cannot be seen. And asking for things to happen that cannot be explained. Only a few weeks ago, we laid hands on the Gaynor family and little Brennan. It didn't look good at all. And within a few days, he had gained seven ounces. Now, you can just say, well, that was going to happen anyway. It has nothing to do with prayer, if you like. I believe God heard our prayers. And every time we ask God for something and he grants it, something supernatural has happened. If I say, Ryan, would you bring me that music stand right now? And he gets up and he walks over and brings it up here and puts it here. You say, okay, that, there's, no, there's nothing extraordinary about that. No, you know why? Because it's natural. But when we talk to the God of heaven and we ask him to do things that we cannot do, and he does it in ways that we cannot understand, and our prayers are answered, something supernatural has happened. Prayer is a supernatural means of grace. And every time we enter into prayer, we should go with that encouragement and that hope. It is, as John Piper said, it is our weak little wire that puts us in touch with the lightning bolt of God. When we come by Faith through the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ and ask things that are according to God's will that are well motivated on our part and scripturally informed. We have every reason to expect something supernatural to happen. And right now we're trying to pray that God would give us 
uh, $575,000. We don't know where that's going to come from because if all of us do everything that we can do, it, it isn't going to come up to 575000 But we need to do all that we can. But what we're doing is we're praying, and some of you have agreed to fast, and some, particularly on Mondays, and some are gathering in the room right behind me on Mondays. We had a sweet and precious prayer meeting last Monday, and Brother Dave will be there, God willing, tomorrow. Why do we do that? Because $575,000 is nothing to God. He can do that. He can meet that need. So let's have that view of prayer and be encouraged in our faith. Number five. I want you to notice the transcendence and the incomprehensibility of God and and the implications of that. Um, What am I talking about? Transcendence. Those are big words. Those are big theological terms. Incomprehensibility. For the sake of the young and those who may not know, let me just put it this way. God is so utterly beyond us and separate from us. That we can never completely comprehend him. God is knowable, and without knowing him, there is no salvation. And I've already reminded us that the problem with this generation is that they did not know the Lord, but the previous generation knew the Lord. God is knowable, but God is not exhaustively knowable. That means none of us can ever know everything there is to know about God not only in this life but throughout eternity we will never exhaust we will never fully comprehend all that makes God glorious because he is infinite in his glory and so when Manoah says could I just ask what's your name and I sense that probably the angel of the Lord, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, that's what a Christophany is, an appearance of Christ, looked at Manoah and said, why do you ask? Let me just quickly tell you why your question is so unreasonable, even though it's well motivated. I could not possibly tell you all that my name represents But I'll give you this word. It is wonderful. Don't we think of Isaiah 9, 6? His name shall be called wonderful. Do you not sometimes think of Psalm 139 when David comprehends or tries to to imagine where he can go and somehow get out of the presence of God and what he can do and somehow be out of the awareness of God. And David realizes upon the slightest reflection that there is no place he can go out of the omnipresence of God. There is nothing he can do <coughs> excuse me, that is outside of the omniscience of God. And this is what he says. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't fully comprehend it, God. You are too much. You are literally too much. And I love it. And don't we glory in worshiping a God who is, in that sense, not fully comprehensible by us as finite, fallen creatures? Yes. How would you like to worship a God you could fully understand? Really? Is that going to help you? You've got him figured out? 
Really? Wow. You should take turns worshiping each other. No. We have a God who is infinite in his glory. He's transcendent. He's incomprehensible. And that's why he doesn't tell us everything we want to know. You know, Manoah, some people, some of the commentators were a bit critical of Manoah. You know, Manoah, come on. What are you trying to do? You're just trying to learn how famous he's going to be, aren't you? We can't say that for sure. Maybe his question was completely innocent. Man of God, would you help us know more about what we should do with the show? Maybe. But the man of God, who was in fact the son of God, says, I told you all you need to know. No wonder we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and our children. I'm not going to reveal anymore. You don't need to know anymore. Do what I told you to do. But then there's also the sense in which we cannot fully comprehend God, period. So see the transcendence and the incomprehensibility of God. And finally, I say finally with quotation marks because I have a word of gospel encouragement at the end. But this is an observation, my sixth observation. There is a need for us to be both overwhelmed with awe and comforted with grace in our Christian lives continually. You know what I like? I like the fact that it says in verse 20, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Wouldn't you have fallen to your face? Can you imagine seeing what appeared to be a human being, though extraordinary, talking to you and being with you while you're offering it, and suddenly that human being goes up in flames out of your sight. You know this is something extraordinary, and it is someone extraordinary, because the text tells us that that's when they realized that it was the angel of the Lord, and down they Go, because they've had a confrontation with God and with his glory. And confrontations with God and his glory should fill us with awe and wonder and humility and reverence. We believe, we do believe in reverence. It's one reason why we quiet quiet our hearts for a few moments before the worship actually begins. We enjoy the fellowship and the love of one another and the countenances of each other. And then... Dave leads us, and we begin to make our approach to God, and we take some moments, and we need to be a reverent congregation for the history of this church's life. But we do need to be careful, too, how we define reverence, because reverence isn't just silence. Reverence isn't just being on our faces. I think I mentioned this before, and I don't want to hammer this so To prove that I don't want to hammer it, I'm not even going to ask you to turn, but I am going to read this to you once more. The psalm which says, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud sounds of joy, immediately says something interesting. And I can imagine someone coming into a worship service where there was clapping and shouting. And some well-meaning man of God say you should don't do this this is not reverence don't you know that the Lord is a God to be feared 
And so immediately after the words, clap your hands, all people shout to God with loud songs of joy. The psalmist tells us why. He says, for the Lord, the most high is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. What? Wait a minute. Clap your hands, all people shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high is to be feared. Come on, that that doesn't go together. Well, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. My point is not to try to get us to clap. My point is to make us think biblically about reverence. Be careful about defining reverence in a way that the Bible doesn't define reverence. Joy and reverence are not antithetical. We should not always be clapping and shouting for joy. There are times we should be flat on our faces, probably not corporately, but at least in our souls. But never view these things as antithetical. My point is, that's what's happening in the text. Down they go, and up they get. Was it wrong to be down? No. Would it have been wrong to stay down? Yes. And Manoah's wife has to say, sweetheart, we're not going to die. In fact, we have something to be very excited about. We have something to be joyful about. Don't you see the gospel here, honey? In a sense, that's what she's saying. There's good news here. Yes, it was God. But he's chosen us to be instruments of a deliverer. And he's talked to us. And he's made promises to us. And he's received our sacrifice. We are in good standing with God. And so in all of our proper reverence for God, which should produce deep, deep and profound awe, there should also be the great comfort and encouragement of the gospel that this God who is a consuming fire has become my father, and I have immediate access to him at all times through the merit of his son. That's a combination. That's a combo. That's a combination of awe and joy, reverence and comfort, all packaged into one. Okay, this is it. I told you, those are my six observations. But I do want to leave you with this thought. And the thought is this. Because maybe some of you have been saying, can you get from Christ? Can you get to Christ from here? I think you can. And I'm sure there are many ways to do it. But I want to suggest just one. I want to remind you that there was born once upon a time to an obscure woman who was supernaturally enabled to become pregnant. A Savior born. And that Savior, uh, once upon a time, literally offered himself as a burnt offering and came under the flaming, consuming judgment of God for our sins and went up to God 
by virtue of that sacrifice, to sit at the right hand of the Father and to rule the kingdom because that sacrifice perfectly propitiated, satisfied all of the wrath of God for our sins. Far greater than Samson. The very person who went up in that fire was Christ. And in a sense, it prefigured another sacrifice and another ascension. And that's our hope today. We have a Savior who can deliver us from more than the Philistines, but from all of our sin and make us right with God for all eternity. And if that's not your Savior, why don't you just believe on him this morning? Why don't you just in your own heart say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need the atonement of Jesus. Make me right with you. Give me his perfect righteousness and make me your child. And he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary birth of Samson. We thank you that there is much to be learned about yourself in that birth. Your wisdom, your power, your grace, your sovereignty, your goodness, your faithfulness. And we pray that you will help us to trust you the way the Israelites of old didn't. Help every person here today to trust exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.